Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Bridget. This is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show diving into all things related to policy analysis in international affairs. The President of the United States made a statement of international significance. I give to you assurance that the people of the United States will not stand idly by if domination of Canadian soil is threatened by any other empire. What you just heard there was what many have since called one of the defining moments of the relationship between Canada and the United States. President Franklin D. Roosevelt's convocation speech, given at Queen's University in 1938, was considered the defining moment in U.S.-Canada relations, where the U.S. made the public statement solidifying that the United States was fully prepared to defend Canada and its territorial integrity against fascism. This brought about a new relationship between Canada and the United States that was, in part, defined by American policy. Firstly, by seeing Canada as a key extension of its defense network, and secondly, as Canada shifting its foreign relations focus away from Britain and more in favor of the United States. This continues to define the Canadian-American United Defense Policy. However, with the election of President Trump in the United States, many in Canada are left wondering among many other things. How does this change, if at all, the effect on the Canada-U.S. security relationship? This is exactly what we are going to talk about today, as we try and understand and grapple with some of the changes that might be coming. So to help us deal with our topic, we are very lucky to be joined by our guest today, Dr. Andrea Chiron. And Dr. Chiron holds a PhD from the Royal Military College of Canada and in the uh, Department of War Studies. She obtained a master's in international relations from Webster University in Leiden, the Netherlands, and a master of public administration from Dalhousie University, and a bachelor of science honors from Queen's University. So Dr. Sharon worked for various federal departments, including the Privy Council Office in the Security and Intelligence Secretariat, and she completed her postdoctorate at Carleton's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. She's currently head of the Center for Security, Intelligence, and Defense Studies located at Carleton University. Thank you very much for joining us today here at Policy Talks. Thank you very much for the invitation. So jumping right in with defense arrangements, the liberal government seems to have had a dramatic transformation in response to the Trump administration, the creation of the U.S. war room, the cabinet shifts with Gax Christia Freeland, who's known to be very savvy and a tough negotiator on policy. And as a security expert yourself, do you believe these shifts have any significance in signaling in the relationship and what those effects might have over security and foreign relations broadly? Well, I think it's been a very shrewd move of the federal government to indicate to the U.S. that, uh, again, the U.S. is our most important ally on a number of fronts, uh, on the trade front and on the defense and security front. And so by making these shifts, it just ensures that that relationship can be front and center and get the attention it deserves. That being said, this is not new. 
successive prime ministers ever since the speech by Roosevelt in 1938 have made sure that the U.S. was prominent in all policy decisions. And indeed, much of Canadian foreign policy is a balancing act between making sure that the interests of Canada and the U.S. can be met. So kind of bringing it broadly to recent events, today was the first Trudeau-Trump meeting and the press conference seemed to be positive. Um, Trump invoking the role of women in both national economies and the importance of trade, as well as some loose terms on security, but we've yet to really have a lot of things cleared up for us. Um, Trudeau in the same vein seemed to focus on how intrinsically intertwined Canada and the US have become, especially when it comes to trade. So it does seem, as you just mentioned, that um, we really are kind of getting this shift. Well, just this relationship is being placed front and center. Mm. Um, And jumping off of that, both leaders hit upon the topic of countering drug trafficking operations across the border, which Noren has been involved in since the 80s. And what changes would you anticipate like going forward, if any, with regard to that section? Well, I'll speak particularly to NORAD, or the North American Aerospace Defense Command, um, because it was actually mentioned uh, between Trump and Trudeau, and that's quite extraordinary, because NORAD is uh, an organization that is often out of sight and out of mind. Uh, It's only really with the events of 9-11 that Canadian and U.S. attention was briefly turned toward NORAD, but other than considering it on... Uh, December 24th with its Santa Tracker program, mostly NORAD is forgotten about. And yet there have been some significant changes to not only its mission mandate, uh, but also a hint in that talk today that NORAD would evolve in the future and could include new domains. So right now, as it stands, NORAD has three missions. There's Air Aerospace Warning air aerospace control and in 2006 when the agreement was signed in perpetuity maritime warning was added and the hint is that NORAD needs to continue to evolve to keep pace with the changing nature of threats that affect both Canada and the United States and so we are seeing now uh, through the Permanent Joint Board of Defense, which was created shortly after Roosevelt's speech to look at sort of the joint defense of North America, how they're going to reorganize themselves in terms of command and control relationships, authorities that can be given, and also things like the modernization of uh, hardware. So, for example, the North Warning System, which is a very important for NORAD, that needs a grading. So I wonder if maybe just for our listeners, you could kind of give us an idea. Would you say that NORAD is largely a U.S.-led venture? And by that, I kind of mean, what degree does Canada have over kind of defining um, NORAD's kind of joint mandate going forward? That's a really important question. Um, The way NORAD is set up, it's a binational agreement. And and that's very important. It's not bilateral, it's binational. And that means that both the U.S. and Canada have a focus, and that is the defense of North America, not the defense of U.S., not the defense of Canada, but the defense of North America. And in fact, the commander of NORAD 
she is in charge of making sure that both Canada and the U.S. are defended. And she is the one individual who has the ability, the responsibility, uh, and the authority to reach up to the highest levels of government on both the U.S. and Canada to ensure that happens. And that's the specialness that is uh, the binational agreement. Now, in terms of Canada's contribution, you're right in terms of a number of personnel that we send down to Colorado Springs at the headquarters doesn't nearly match the big footprint of the U.S. But NORAD is a tri-command, and the Canadian Joint Operations Centre is part of that tri-command. So there's CJOC, there's U.S. NORTHCOM, and there's NORAD. And Canada is implicated in CJOC, obviously, in NORAD, but we also have liaisons in U.S. NORTHCOM. So Canada, while we don't perhaps send as many personnel and don't have the same resources, we are key to this tri-command structure that NORAD has. Going off of that, now NORAD is a very formal and structured arrangement. With that, do you see some of the informal arrangements, such as the Five Eyes, being shaped differently going forward, seeing as the relationship is forming now? I think it's a really good question. I think that the the Five Eyes and other alliances like NATO um, will continue. Uh, there, you, we may see, uh, Trump has suggested that he's not as keen on NATO, especially if it's perceived that European countries aren't quote-unquote, pulling their weight. And so you may actually see a reinvigoration of the Five Eyes relationship uh, because Trump might feel he can depend on that uh, because of the players. There's Canada, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand, all very uh, Western-aligned um, allies uh, of the U.S. of longstanding. S- but will the Five Eyes relationship change fundamentally? I don't see that happening. Is it relatively, because I'm a bit new to security studies, the Five Eyes, does it tend to have a very malleable structure in terms of who's on first and whose information gets shared most versus least and what kind of reciprocation looks Mm -hmm. like within the Five Eyes? Well, often it depends on the situation at hand. So if it's a a situation that needs to be tracked that is closer to Australia and New Zealand, of course, their intelligence will feature far more prominently than will Canada's or perhaps the UK's. Um, But they they share information on a variety of topics um, and often do exercises together. So um, at certain times you might see one of the countries take more of a lead role but but you're right, it's, it, it is flexible and fungible in terms of how it can arrange based on this situation. Uh, speaking again on the Five Eyes, given the Trump administration's open views on torture, I wonder if you might speak to any possible issues the Trudeau administration might face when it comes to intelligence sharing within these sort of arrangements, especially given the possibility that such uh, information might then be used uh, in some connection with future torture. And here I'm thinking back to the Mayor case mm-hmm. and the RCMP providing information that contributed to his situation. Well, in all defense, security, and intelligence relationships, there are always what we ha- call caveats, national caveats that uh, constrain 
the relationship between different states. And when it comes to Canada, the United States, or any other state for that matter, Canada does not believe in torture, nor will we participate in it, nor will we accept uh, intelligence that's taken uh, from torture. And and I hope you know, long may that last. Uh, I know there have been cases where we've run afoul of that, but, but that is the what we strive to do. And I, I don't see uh, that changing. We we recognize from the Mayor case that um, it didn't help us. And in fact, it in some cases, it hurt Canadian interests, not to mention a Canadian national. Uh, so, you know, there was a, um, a documentary recently on the 12 living directors of the CIA. And while they all had different opinions or different nuanced uh, advice to give to future intelligence directors, they all said categorically that uh, killing your way out of a situation is never the solution. Um, And far too often, many of them admitted that the intelligence that they... um, would uh, would get either via torture or other means. Um, it's how they use it that it's much more important. It's something they all need to spend more attention to. So, for example, using intelligence not as a targeting mechanism, but using it for what it is, which is to take information, policy analysis, and thinking about how that information uh, can make for smarter, better foreign policy decisions going forward for the U.S. government. I think that's a great point. And on that note, we're going to take a short break and come back after a few minutes. You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. So we're back with Dr. Andrea Sharon. And right now we're going to go into a section on Arctic sovereignty and the new defense policy review. So with the new white paper expected from the Canadian government's defense review, what can we expect to come out of this given the new U.S. administration? Well, I think uh, you you might see some shuffling at the margins, but if you look at successive white papers from 1964, 1971, uh, 1994, 2005, 2008, uh, the the priorities for the Canadian Armed Forces has remained the defense of Canada, North America, and then international security after that. So it it sort of transcends who is the prime minister and who is the president. And so I don't see that changing. It is curious that the defense review is long anticipated and hasn't come out yet. I suspect they are 
thinking about what are the ramifications given the Trump government and given budget constraints. So I think that might be one of the reasons why we're still waiting. Do you find that over time, does it have a lot of continuity to it? Or have there been major points in history where there have been large divergences in security policy through these white papers? In the main, it stayed pretty consistent. It might be that certain prime ministers, for example, will preference missions with NATO as opposed to with the UN or vice versa or with coalitions of the willing. And that's a function of the geostrategic circumstances at the time um, and, and, and the sort of events that that they're dealing with. Um, What you do see is a difference in how much money is available. You see wild differences (laughs) between the defense white papers. Um, And so that's always one of the things that that we track. For example, the 2008 defense white paper, which is still the current one, was written at a time when we thought we had lots of money. And so there was lots of promises for new hardware um, and an increase in the size of the Canadian military. And then we had the 2008 crash and we realized, well, that we just don't have the funds anymore. And so adjustments had to be made. And and going into this defense white paper, um, we recognize that more money has to be put towards the defense of Canada and North America and international security, but it's not an endless pot of money. And uh, even though Trump would like all NATO allies to spend 2% of GDP, I don't see that happening in the future. Um, Mind you, Canada has never really spent 2% of Mm -hmm. GDP absent major world wars. So uh, we, I don't see us having a a massive policy shift now just because uh, the new administration uh, in the US would like to see that happening. So would you say that this, the, the, the defense review, the white paper, is this primarily a government-led approach, or are they consulting with, with different stakeholders, perhaps even international partners, to kind of formulate uh, policy? Well, defense white papers usually do consult, especially among other government departments and allies. Uh, but this defense white paper, I think, has to be the most widely consulted yet. Uh, It was unprecedented the number of academics and just general Canadians whom they invited to write to them about what they thought were Canada's defense priorities. I think in many ways the biggest problem for ADM Paul, who is the department that has to kind of sift through all the the information is you know, they thought they were going to be sipping with a straw and instead they were given a fire hose (laughs) and and trying to make sense of all of that, those, that good advice, bad advice, uh, wrong advice, excellent advice, it, it, it must be really difficult. In those experiences, have you seen anything that you thought is a very surprising divergence from what the public wants and what you would see as someone who studied this for a long time or looking at other people who are implementing and people are the, creating the budgets around it? You know? Well, I think you hit it on the head when you said that this section we'd be talking about the defense review and quote-unquote Arctic sovereignty. And I think that's where I see the biggest divergence. I think there are many, many Canadians whom when you talk about the Arctic, um, they are concerned it's under threat either from climate change or resource development or from state aggression by Russia, China, you name it. But when I look at uh, what is 
the major concern for the Arctic, and I've been studying this for a number of years, it is not these state-on-state aggression that I'm worried about. Uh, it's the lack of development. It's the lack of opportunities for communities up there. And nothing says sovereignty like healthy, well-functioning, sustainable communities. Um, so I don't like to use the term sovereignty when I'm talking about the Arctic, except for in those sorts of circumstances. It's can we see these communities living there generation after generation? If not, then that's a potential threat to sovereignty. But, for example, every time we hear that Russia is coming close to our, our borders, um, that's not necessarily a threat to sovereignty. And it's something that we have been managing for 60 mm-hmm. plus years. Would you say that previous Canadian governments have kind of stuck to those aforementioned uh, sort of key threats, key issues, so resource management, you know, state aggression, and perhaps neglected uh, um, sustainable development up in the Arctic? Well, I think that, th- yes, generally, I think that is the case. All Canadian prime ministers, starting with Pearson, had have have drawn their attention to the north and they've either put in place new laws new regulations uh, perhaps you've seen more military capabilities sent up north to sort of quote-unquote fix the north but the 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 difficulties of the north the the fact that they need sustainable uh, jobs, they need access to healthy food at a reasonable cost. Um, that is so difficult to fix. It is extremely expensive. And we're talking about approximately 120,000 people living where most people, most Canadians will never go and can't begin to conceive of the challenges. You know, we have no working ports in, in the north, which means all foodstuffs either has to be flown up or brought in by shipping containers. Uh, it's only in the last two generations that we've had a cash economy. Um, all of these massive changes that have come um, so quickly for those communities and they're trying to to grapple with all of that. Mm-hmm. And occasionally the the south comes with, we think, good-intentioned designs and policies, but they're ill-conceived for the realities (laughs) of the North and the Arctic. Uh, And so I think that's a a common theme for successive governments. So would you then say that perhaps, you know, given the long-term nature, the expensive nature of these projects, that there's perhaps a political or a lack of political will to really kind of undertake a sustainable development of the North? I don't think it's a lack of political will. I think in many cases it's uh, where do we start? And it's not a homogeneous Arctic. The The West is very different from the East. Uh, each community has their particulars. Um, the one thing that is common is how entrepreneurial the people of the, of the North and the Arctic are. Um, and so one of the issues is not more regulations, more government help. And in many cases, we need to take away some of the government regulations and help because it's the red tape that is often uh, one of the biggest impediments to to job creation. And I can imagine it would just be completely frustrating to to be kind of encumbered upon 
when you, if you're just moving from a cash economy just a couple of decades ago to saying, wait a second, what <laughs> what is going on here and what's the purpose? Like, what's the role? Why why are you trying to influence the communities in this way? Are you trying to better it? But if it's if people have a differing opinion or a differing view of what could either be imposed by regulation or what is struck like what is structured now that didn't used to be it could be entirely frustrating yeah it's it's it, i mean we we we're all frustrated with different levels of government i think the difference is here in the south we have more immediate access to to our government representatives um Whereas much of the decision making for the North and the Arctic comes at the federal level, which is located in Ottawa, you know, thousands and thousands of kilometers away. And their attention isn't always thinking uh, to the North and the Arctic or not thinking about the particular circumstances of the North and the Arctic. And a solution that will work for Toronto and Ottawa is not necessarily a solution that will work for the Arctic. For example, uh, when Health Canada puts in best before dates for food, which is which is a great idea. It means that food stays fresh, um, and it means that the consumers are, are, are getting the best products. And so with these best before dates, as opposed to um, expiration dates, uh, it just means you're getting the product that it's freshest. It's not that it's not safe to eat anymore. But you apply those recommendations in the north, and all of a sudden you take a food staple like Kraft Dinner, which, you know, let's face it, it's radioactive. It's never going <laughs> off. Um, and, and now require a best before date, and that ha- means it has to be pulled from the shelf uh, when people could still eat it meaning you're jacking up the price of all the other foodstuffs and remembering that this craft dinner wasn't driven in on a truck. It had to be flown in or shipped in. Um, all of a sudden, that rule that might make sense for us here in Ottawa um, doesn't make any sense for them in, in, in the Arctic. I guess oh, combining those kind of themes when you talk about, you know, quote unquote, Arctic sovereignty and the issue of communities and development. Do you see a lot of the scrambling that's going on in the north for, you know, claiming a flag and staking land to be extremely disruptive to these communities? Well, I think the the land territory has has been sorted out. I think where there's still uh, some discussions is on the maritime claims, and especially on the Beaufort Sea between the U.S. and Canada, um, and then the the Lincoln Sea between Denmark and and Canada, and then of course there are our submissions for um, the the continental shelf, which we still have not submitted our final. Um, data for the Arctic. And so everybody's waiting for what will be the ramifications of that. I wonder if, so kind of bringing us back to touching on the local populations in the North, in the Arctic, if you could maybe speak to the government's reliance on these local populations for for security and defense in the Arctic. And here I'm thinking the Arctic Rangers. Mm -hmm. And perhaps given the potential emphasis on Arctic security going forward, might we see additional funding, additional support for these local units? Well, I think um, not just this government, but past governments, the Rangers have been a very uh, successful program and a a very needed program. Um, They're the eyes and ears of the Canadian forces in the north. Now, that does not mean they have a mandate to fight wars 
in the north. Um, they simply report what's happening. But they're essential to, for example, any exercises that the Canadian Armed Forces does. The Rangers are there to give them the local knowledge uh, because it is a pretty inhospitable climate and uh, you need to understand how the land works if, if, you're, if you're going to survive. The Ranger program and the Junior Ranger program is not very expensive in, in terms of uh, the defense budget and so I think it's always been a popular one to try and support because you get a lot of bang for little for little dollars uh, that being said um, you know it, it, it still could use more funds um, it is a great program especially for the youth to uh, for the elders to be able to pass on knowledge to them and to feel a part uh, of the community uh, it's the, it's the challenge of all teenagers, how do you get them passionate and involved about their community and their country? Uh, and we need ranger programs as much as we do in the north as we do arguably <laughs> in the south as well. Reining it back to the involvement with the U.S., do you find that when it comes to talking about the Arctic, do, do, do the U.S. eyes glaze over and say, oh, you know, who kind of cares about that? Or is it does Canada really have a common place to protect these communities in its negotiations with the U.S. over what goes on in the North? Well, the U.S. periodically forgets it's an Arctic nation as well. Uh, it is actually <laughs> chairing the Arctic Council uh, until about May 2017, where it will hand it over to Finland. And whereas the Obama administration was very... Um, energized and, and invested in the Arctic Council and even um, had uh, retired Admiral Papp from the U.S. Coast Guard, who was sort of a, a, an Arctic champion. Uh, we, he has since resigned and we've heard precious little from the Trump administration about the Arctic other than resource exploitation. Uh, when it comes to the Arctic and sustainable development, Canada has always made that one of its its uh, signature policy goals. In fact, the Arctic Council was created by Canada because it added a sustainable development mandate to what was the Arctic Environment Protection Strategy, which was started with an idea of the Russians and was then taken over by the Finns. So in that area, because you said the Obama administration was maybe not surprisingly energized, but well more energized than the U.S. may have, be, may have been under previous administrations. Do you think that was really enacted from the global climate change mandate and Obama's particular policies on green energy development and looking at alternative fuel sources? Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. I think that was one of the main drivers of uh, the Obama administration's interest in the Arctic was climate change. The Arctic has usually been described as the, the canary in the coal mine. So if we're going to understand climate change, we need to understand it in the Arctic. And, and certainly we saw that in the last two years of the U.S. chairmanship, um, climate change, things like reduction of black carbon were very front and center for their two-year agenda. So kind of playing off the Obama uh, administration's position on the Arctic, do you kind of envision a divergence from that with the Trump administration, perhaps towards a more strictly security approach, given the administration's views on climate change? 
Well, yes and no. I mean, the Arctic Council, I think, will continue. And because the U.S. is not chairing anymore, you may see less enthusiastic support of the Arctic Council, uh, in, especially in the term of resources. But uh, the, Ar- the Arctic Council will continue to, you know, pursue sustainable development and environmental protection. Um, it's interesting that the latest uh, U.S. defense Arctic policy does mention uh, security interests. That's not necessarily new. That's typical of most uh, U.S. defense uh, policies to talk about, you know, defense of U.S. being uh, front and center. Um, What is interesting is slightly different wording now referring to the quote-unquote excessive maritime claims of Russia and Canada. And that is new language. Um, We've known for a long time that the U.S. has not seen how we characterize our Northwest Passage and uh, the Russian Passage as well in the same way. But they tend, we've tended to agree to disagree. And the U.S. um, has been really good about not pushing the issue, knowing what a hot button issue it is for Canada. Uh, but this latest report actually does mention the, you know, excessive maritime claims. So that'll, that will be interesting how much of that was a reflection of the new Trump administration. Um, it came out in, in, in January, I believe. Um, but I'm not sure that, that the Trump administration necessarily would have had a lot of input, uh, beings as these documents take, you know, months to, 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 to craft. Well, it's definitely interesting considering it's a rare time now that you talk about international policy where you mention the U.S. and Russia, like you always mention U.S. and U.S. and Russia in the same vein. It kind of echoes back to a to a, like a Cold War era mm-hmm. a little bit. And do you see any issue in the fact that that issue might be pressed a bit more than it otherwise would be where it's just kind of like let sleeping dogs lie? Like. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't see it as a cold war. Uh, we don't have that ideological divide that we once did. Um, I'm not sure what the future is going to bring. But when it comes to the Arctic, uh, Russia has most to lose if the Arctic becomes lawless, uh, and they have been very good so far about respecting all of the law and order processes that they have. For example, the uh, delimitation of their continental shelf. Um, And I might add that they actually um, have ratified the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which the U.S. has not. I mean, they're still not a party to one of the most important treaties that the world has. So um, I know a lot of fingers are always pointed at Russia, and they have a lot to atone for for their policies in Ukraine and Syria. Uh, But when it comes to the Arctic, um, I don't see it in their interest to see this one area of cooperation where they dominate in terms of resources, in terms of um, ice-breaking capabilities, in terms of how much of their GDP is invested in this region. Uh, I I don't see it in Russia's best interest to, to change the policy of cooperation in the Arctic. Given that Canada was also mentioned uh, in this report and kind of the Americans taking issue at our maritime claims, if you can, um, could you speak to perhaps how strongly the Canadian government holds uh, these maritime claims? Is there any sort of 
possible room for concession should it become a point of tension in the, the U.S.-Canadian relationship? Well, it's been a long-standing disagreement, so I don't see it um, miraculously going away. Um, I, From a legal standpoint, you know, if we're going to get more traffic in the Northwest Passage, that alone may start to disentangle our quote-unquote historic internal waters arguments. Um, many, however, have who have been arguing uh, Canada's case for a long time are, are quite confident that our claim will continue to stand. So right now, uh, you know, it's it's lawyers who spend a lot of time looking at this and, 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 and debating it, but uh, I don't see either the Canadian or the U.S. government looking to push this issue. Of all the issues that Certainly. That we can't be worrying about. This is not <laughs> not one I would tackle. So I guess looking in terms of wrapping up, if you had a small post-it note of a you know a three-point checklist of things you would like to see in the white paper addressed, what would those be? Well, I think we have to go back to that very important. Uh, commencement address that Roosevelt made, that they would not stand idly by uh, if Canada were attacked. And that requires that we make a a conscious and dedicated effort to ensure that, in turn, the U.S. is not attacked uh, because of Canada. And so my hope is that more attention will be paid to the defense of Canada and to the defense of North America. Um, so it's it's more than just buying uh, more stuff. It's looking at the size of our Canadian forces, how they're trained, opportunities to maybe work uh, different hours, different, uh, you know, rather than having just regular and reserve. It's mm-hmm. Lots of things could change, and so I'm hoping, I'm really hoping that they have that out-of-box thinking uh, when they release the defense white paper. Perfect. Well, thank you. I think that's all the time that we have for today. We appreciate you coming in, sharing your perspective on these issues. And remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at PolicyTalksPod for updates and related content. If you have any feedback, comments, suggestions, opinions, we'd love to hear it from you. Send us an email or reach out on Facebook or Twitter. So we want to give a quick thanks to our research team who helped put this episode together. Um, Devin Wallenius, Kenneth Bodie, and Molly Horn, as well as our audio technician, Laura Falco, and finally, our wonderful producer, Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Matt. And I'm Bridget. This is Policy Talks. 